This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. A Dutch court's convicted three men of murder over the shooting down of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 in eastern Ukraine. 298 people were killed, including 38 Australians, when the plane was shot down by a Russian-made missile in 2014. A fourth defendant was acquitted, but none of the convicted offenders will serve time because they remain at large. Families of the Australian victims say they're pleased to have some answers, while they'll never fully achieve justice. Europe correspondent Nick Dole was at the court in Amsterdam. There were no smiles outside court when the Australian families emerged. No sense of triumph. Three men have been convicted over the attack that killed their loved ones, but that doesn't make their grief any easier. Meryn O'Brien lost her 25-year-old son, Jack. You know, for all of us, it doesn't change anything, so it's a measure of justice, but um, it would be complete justice if our family members were restored to us. But some of the families who came here to the Netherlands did achieve a degree of satisfaction in hearing the judges assign blame. Russians Igor Gherkin, Sergei Dubinsky and Ukrainian rebel commander Leonid Karchenko have all been found guilty of murder and given life sentences, but they remain at large because Russia won't hand them over. The court found that while they didn't fire the weapon, they all played a role in procuring the missile launcher that shot the plane out of the sky over eastern Ukraine in 2014. Matthew Horder's parents, Howard and Susan, were among the 38 Australians killed in the attack. It's not lost on us that the the, the three that are found guilty um, are unlikely to see time behind bars. Uh, so, you know, there's still a little bit of a, a hollow feeling in terms of whether we have sought justice uh, or feel that justice. But having those facts confirmed today and having that truth is um, very important for the families. After assessing witness accounts, photos, videos and intercepted phone taps, the judges said there was no doubt in their minds the missile launcher was brought in from Russia and then fired at MH17. Henrik Steinhaus is the presiding judge. Everything indicates that the Vok missile was launched deliberately, but that they believed that it was a military aircraft rather than a civil one. Such an error does not, however, detract from the premeditated intent. The judges found that one defendant, Russian Oleg Pulitov, wasn't actively involved, so they acquitted him. While there's a sense of frustration among the victims' families that none of the defendants are facing punishment, much of their anger is directed at the Russian regime, which is still attacking Ukraine eight years later. Paul Gard lost his parents, Roger and Jill. We really call for Russia to end this senseless violence. Uh, Withdraw from Ukraine. You don't belong there. Do not participate in this war. Putin, stop this senseless violence. We do not need it. And, And Ukraine has had enough. The war tore these Australian families' lives apart. Millions of Ukrainians are still in Russia's firing line. This is Nick Dole in Amsterdam, reporting for AM. Australian economist Sean Turnell is expected to land in Australia this morning after being released from a Myanmar jail late yesterday. Both the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister have spoken with the Professor on the phone last night, saying he's in remarkably good spirits. Southeast Asia correspondent Mazoe Ford reports from Bangkok. Within an hour of touching down in Bangkok for the APEC summit, Anthony Albanese confirmed another Australian had arrived in Thailand too. Professor Sean Turnell, who'd been released from a Myanmar jail hours earlier, was in transit through Bangkok on his way home to Australia. The pair spoke over the phone. He was in really, really good spirits. Uh, He was making jokes 
He's from my electorate and apologised for not voting at the election. I assured him he wouldn't be fined and that it was understandable. Professor Turnell, who'd been working in Myanmar as an economic advisor to the then leader on Sun Suu Kyi, was arrested after last year's military coup. In September, he was sentenced to three years jail for violating the Official Secrets Act, but always denied the charges and was given a pardon yesterday. The Prime Minister thanked Australian diplomats and ASEAN leaders for their relentless advocacy. Sean Turnell was grateful too. Uh, Sean said to me that he wanted to thank also, importantly, the people of Australia who have not given up, uh, continued to run a campaign and to advocate for his release. The Sydney Economist was one of almost 6,000 prisoners freed as part of an amnesty to mark Myanmar National Day. Human rights activist Debbie Stothard from the Altsian Burma Network says the junta shouldn't be praised though, with 13,000 other political prisoners still detained and a violent crackdown on dissent all over the country continuing. And we are expecting a harsher crackdown as the junta tries to gain control in the lead-up to an il- a sham elections it plans to hold in 2023. There's going to be more resistance to these sham elections and there's going to be a harsher crackdown and we mustn't take our eyes off this situation. The question for Australia now will be whether to impose sanctions on Myanmar. It had resisted while Sean Turnell was in custody. David Matheson is a Myanmar analyst. I think now is the opportunity um, for Australia to actually impose much tougher measures. If if he's out now, then there is nothing um, stopping them from imposing um, very tough sanctions and actually increasing their criticism of the absolutely dreadful um, atrocities that are being committed by the military across the country. The Prime Minister wouldn't be drawn on any next steps. This is a day to celebrate the release of Professor Turnell. A celebration after 650 days of detention. This is Mazoe Ford in Bangkok, reporting for AM. UN climate meeting in Egypt is supposed to end in under 24 hours, but like previous COP or Conference of Parties events, meetings are running long into the night because attendees can't agree on key points. People are tired and grumpy while trying to do deals on financing for poor countries to adapt to a warming planet and to compensate for losses. UN Chief Antonio Guterres says no, it's no time for finger-pointing that the blame game is a recipe for mutually assured destruction. Australia is represented by Chris Bowen, the Federal Climate Change and Energy Minister. We spoke earlier. Chris Bowen, the host of these talks, Sammy Shukri, says the progress of some negotiations needs to reflect the gravity of the crisis. You're leading negotiations on getting a finance package for energy transition for emerging countries. What's progress like? Will you get an agreement that everyone's happy with? I certainly think in the area, Sabra, that I've been uh, given responsibility for by the COP presidency to negotiate, yes. Very confident and hopeful about that being spending many hours uh, negotiating that uh, through. And uh, while there's more work to do this evening, it's about uh, 9 o'clock at night. Our time will be going for several hours yet, but I do believe there'll be progress. But across the board, there's lots of areas of importance uh, and discussions. The nature of these things is that, you know, there'll be many more hours of talking yet. Given the meeting that the Prime Minister had earlier this week with the Chinese President, Xi, has that had any flow-on effect there at that meeting? Uh, yeah, look, I think it's fair to say it has, Sabra. Uh, so I met today with uh, my counterpart, the Special Envoy for Climate Change, uh, Mr Xi Jinhua, and the Vice Minister, uh, Mr Zhao Yingmin, 
No, this is the first time an Australian climate minister's met with a Chinese minister since, uh, I believe, 2017. Um, so that's a step forward. Obviously, China's the world's uh, one of the world's biggest emitters. Uh, obviously, uh, there's been cooperation between Australia and China in the past on climate initiatives that ceased several years ago. Um, the most important thing about this meeting is that it occurred so quickly after the Prime Minister's meeting with the President. I think it shows a, a willingness now to engage. We didn't we didn't uh, you know, make any concrete agreements, but we uh, agreed that it was a good thing that we get to know each other and, and have a dialogue and, and keep in contact. Is there a moral imperative for Australia to stop opening new coal and gas fields? And are you planning to use the safeguard mechanism to limit and police carbon emissions from new projects? Uh, well, I certainly, uh, the government certainly will be using the safeguards mechanism to improve the uh, regulation of emissions across the board. And uh, obviously, uh, I've got more to say about that when I return back to Australia. The safeguards emissions, safeguards reforms are important to reduce emissions from our 215 biggest emitters. And I'll be putting a lot more detail about that uh, in the not too distant future out for public discussion. Yeah. Is there a moral imperative for Australia to stop opening new coal and gas fields? There's a moral imperative for Australia to act on climate change. I don't think there's any, I don't think, uh, there's any news in me saying that. And uh, we'll be engaging very strongly and continue to engage uh, in all those reforms, Sabra. Australia is pitching to co-host a summit in 2026 with the region. Vanuatu says that the Albanese government has been a breath of fresh air, but the foreign minister says his government couldn't endorse Australia co-hosting this bid if it continues to invest more money in developing fossil fuels. And he's calling on other Pacific countries to adopt the same stance. Is your bid dead if you don't do that? <laughs> oh, Sabra, uh, on the contrary, uh, I had a great meeting with the Vanuatu minister. Um, uh, he expressed as you said, strong support for the agenda of the Albanese government. He said we're a fresh breath of fresh air, etc. He said that publicly and privately. He also, like many colleagues, had questions about our policies, um, which we had a good chat about. There's, I must say on the bid, Sabra, there's been not only support from the region, from the Pacific, because we see it very much as a Pacific bid, but uh, I'll leave other countries to announce their position in due course. But let's just say the level of support we've received from uh, right around the world has been very, very encouraging for the bid. Is Australia going to commit funds to the loss and damage compensation scheme, as some nations are demanding? Well, well um, let's just take this. Take, let's just step this through, Sabra. Firstly, what is loss and damage? Loss and damage is about developed countries helping developing countries deal with the impacts of climate change on them. Uh, you know, natural disasters are up more than eighty percent since the nineteen eighties, and they impact every country. But the economic impact is bigger in developing countries uh, because it just has a bigger impact as a proportion of their economy. That's the case for fast-moving natural disasters like cyclones and uh, floods and, and fires. It's the case for slow-onset disasters uh, like rising sea levels. And yes, developed countries should be uh, helping developing countries deal with that. You know, that in many ways underpins our commitment to increase foreign aid to the Pacific by $900 million in the budget just a couple of weeks ago and our climate financing facility. Now, in relation to your question about uh, loss and damage facilities, we, we supported this going on to the agenda. Uh, I've been talking to Pacific countries in particular uh, about how this gets dealt with at the COP, uh, and uh, you, the, there has been no agreement on this across the board yet, so we're getting way ahead of ourselves uh, in terms of what it looks like. All right, but uh, it's, I, it's, I it's a yes is, or no. I suspect this will be... So- well, no, but with respect, Sabra, you're asking me how we will respond to a facility which does not yet exist and which not has been agreed has not been agreed at this COP yet. Chris Bowen, thanks for your time this morning on AM. Yeah, good on you, Sabra. It's uh, good evening from me and good morning to you. And uh, 
have a great day and I'll just get back to negotiations. Federal Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen. It's a condition with little data so far, but for the first time we're getting a clearer picture of how long COVID's affecting everyday Australians. Submissions to a federal parliamentary inquiry closed today and it's hoped the investigation will shape how long COVID's treated here in the future. Experts have already told it it's estimated 3 to 5% of those infected with the virus will have ongoing symptoms. Isabel Masali reports. More than 100 public submissions, each with their own story. They don't know if or when they'll recover from long COVID. They feel terrified and alone. I'm no longer capable of working. I was a neuroscientist. My children no longer have an active, involved parent. Both myself and my 19-month-old are suffering from long COVID, according to a doctor. Every month she has high fevers of 40-plus and a horrible croup-style cough. This has already caused me to be dismissed from a job as they believe we were faking the symptoms. I can't move some days, can't eat or sleep. Other days, all I do is sleep. I don't want this being pushed aside. I don't want people thinking that everything is normal now. Our lives have drastically changed. Many write of their despair and disbelief as they sought medical care for a range of ongoing effects. I went to a Victorian government respiratory clinic I felt like I didn't matter and that the doctor didn't take my symptoms seriously. He told me to chew gum for my ears. Working in the food industry, I can no longer taste anything I produce, which is very difficult mentally. If my taste never comes back, I will most likely have to close my business. The submissions to the Federal Inquiry into Long COVID and Repeat Infections come from those with first-hand experience as well as experts and officials. My brain is fine, but I am not. I'm losing my words. The lights simply just go out. That's Sydney-based academic Pippa Yeoman, who describes the last eight months as drowning in the absence of water and seeing a merry-go-round of specialists. And if I was in charge, I would be looking to the projects that are actually making a difference, making sure that they had funding to carry on. And once we kind of stemmed some of the tide and met some of the urgency, then we can look at larger-scale projects. But there is no urgency. And there's little compassion if this commission can uh, insert both those into the public discourse, that would be a good start. Among the submissions, there's a push for better data and a national approach to diagnosis and treatment. GPs are pleading for funding and the Department of Health in Victoria warns it can have debilitating and long-term effects that puts pressure on the health system and prevents people from returning to their usual lives with significant social and economic costs. Dr Stephen Duckett is a health economist and honorary professor at the University of Melbourne. His submission is joint with his daughter, who contracted COVID at age 25 and struggled for more than a year. We've got to acknowledge that preventing long COVID means preventing COVID. The second is, is again, pretty obvious. It's to say, look, by definition, long peak COVID means people are sicker now than they used to be. We've got a higher prevalence of, of illness than we used to have. And so our hospital funding arrangements are going to have to acknowledge that. It's also care in the community. It's also primary care. And that includes more and ongoing access to respiratory clinics. He also hopes the inquiry leads to recognition that long COVID will impact Australians for a long time and the health system must be prepared for increased demand. Isabel Masali reporting there. 
For the first time, some of Tasmania's precious commercial abalone quotas have been issued to establish an Indigenous fishery. The vast majority of Tasmania's commercial catch heads offshore, but there are hopes the new venture will mean more locally caught abalone on Tasmanian restaurant tables. Alexandra Humphreys reports. At Massimo Mele's busy Hobart restaurant Pepina, abalone's rarely on the menu, despite a big local industry. It's been hard to get, but when we have had it, it's been hugely popular. He's one of the first to put his hand up to support an emerging Indigenous industry, and he's hoping to get the abalone onto plates this summer. I think people really love traceability, they love provenance and, and quality. So I think it ticks all those three boxes. I think the fact that we are supporting uh, an initiative that is going to give back to a community that really needs the support, I think is a really great thing to talk about. And and people kind of really want to find the stories and and believe in the product. Earlier this year, the Tasmanian government handed over 40 abalone quotas to create a cultural fishery in a three-year deal. After past prosecutions, it means Indigenous Tasmanians finally have the right to fish for abalone commercially. The quotas were for a total of nine tonnes this year alone, and that's keeping Indigenous diver Brian Denny busy. It's been been going well so far. Um, I've had quite a lot of product frozen by a couple of, uh, of one processor in particular, who's um, who's really come on board and trying to help us to, to get all of this off the ground so that we can get a a product into Tasmania restaurants. And how does it feel for you when you go out uh, for a dive and you know that this time you're diving to catch part of the Indigenous quota? It's just an enormous feeling of being proud to to be involved in it. Now it's not just a product that's going to go overseas. It's it's actually having that ownership to really look after the resource and really look after the product so that we can get a premium product onto the you know, restaurant tables here. At the moment, about 95% of abalone caught in Tasmania is exported. It's rare to see it in a restaurant. For Emma Lee, an Associate Professor of Indigenous Leadership at Swinburne University of Technology, it's about changing the economic models surrounding the delicacy. As soon as it goes offshore... Well, it's not there in front of us, so we can't ask the questions about how are we caring for it? Who is benefiting from this export industry? And is sea country healthy because of it? These foods come from our places that we live and love. And if we don't know these foods, then we can't be caring for country in the right and best proper ways. Dr Lee says people want to know the stories behind the product. I think people want to know the provenance and there's no better provenance than Aboriginal wild-caught abalone from Tasmania. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it doesn't get much better than this. Jo Cook works to pull together some of Tasmania's best-known festivals. She's been working with chefs across the state and developing a brand for Indigenous abalone. The whole plan is for the abalone to be consumed here on country. People want to eat it and it's it's really, you don't often get it in restaurants. So visitors want to experience it. They want to know about the culture. That's festival organiser Joe Cook ending that report from Alexandra Humphreys and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. In 2015, world leaders legally agreed to cut emissions to limit global warming to well below two degrees. 
haven't achieved it. Today, environment reporter Michael Slezak on where we stand at the end of the latest global climate summit in Egypt. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.